toward the end of the Buddha's long night under the Bodhi tree. And after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially obstructive forces in the mind, after Mara had let fly at Siddhartha, the about-to-be Buddha, all of the poison arrows of (coughs) desire, craving, aversion, all of the arrows that we could call the afflictive emotions. Mara trying to distract the Buddha from his great resolve that famous night. Mara found that none of these arrows stuck. And so finally, Mara shot the last arrow at the Bodhisattva, hoping that this one would really stick in firmly deeply and stay there. The last poison arrow of delusion, the arrow of doubt, the arrow of self-doubt. Mara said to the Buddha, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting there? What makes you think you have the right to be sitting there doing what you're doing? Just who do you think you are anyway? And this just about to be Buddha, with his great deep confidence and his lion-like fearlessness and his amazing grace, he just simply reached down with the fingertips of his right hand and touched the earth. making the connection and letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And at that moment, Mara was defeated, never again to appear to the Buddha. This evening I'd like to explore um, the second of the three characteristics, uh, the universal characteristics. Last night we talked about anicca, impermanence. This evening I'd like to explore dukkha, suffering. Two months after the Buddha attained enlightenment under that Bodhi tree, enlightenment could be defined as a total freedom from suffering, total freedom from anguish, freedom from confusion. Two months after this was the Buddha's experience, he delivered his first Dharma discourse in Sarnath, in Deer Park, in India, to the five ascetics that he had been doing some very austere practices with for about six years. 
that night or that day when he gave this first discourse after his enlightenment, he began turning the wheel of the Dharma, and it's been turning for about 2,600 years now. In this first discourse, he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddha taught that suffering is intrinsic to the human condition, or at least that until we wake up to the true nature of life, the true nature of ourselves, that suffering is intrinsic to the human condition. When he spoke those words, I teach suffering, he wasn't, of course, recommending suffering. Uh, or he wasn't about to tell us the best way to suffer. Uh, everybody knows their own best way to suffer. We're very good at it. What he was really doing was pointing out that the truth of its existence. And that until we look at it very directly, very deeply, and very honestly, at the reality of suffering in our lives, until we do that, we aren't able to take the necessary steps to free ourselves from it. There are three different aspects of suffering from, this, from the Buddha's understanding and perspective. And one of the faces of suffering, we could say, could be called the suffering of painful experience, something we're all quite familiar with. Our own painful experience and the painful experience of others. Here in Taos or anywhere, uh, anywhere in the world, we see poverty. I was in India, not this year, but the year before, and there, some of you I think have been there, you see teeming poverty everywhere. You can't get away from it. Here it's hidden more. You can find it, but it's harder to see. So that's suffering of painful experience, for instance. And when we see this, we may have feelings of sadness, frustration, confusion, maybe even anger, doubt, and feelings that may kind of shake the foundation of our beliefs, shake the foundation of our various opinions, shake our sense of security. And then the suffering of painful experience of our own, for instance, bodily experiences. All of the conditions, all the discomforts in our body, aches and pains, and we're real familiar with those these last days. And the suffering of uh, the painful experience of coughs and sneezes and the 
endless mucus that this body makes. I'm totally amazed. never <laughs> seems to stop. <laughs> the respiratory problems. The suffering of painful experience. And this, this very broad spectrum, I've only named a small portion of it, but this very broad spectrum is probably what most people think of as the pain of existence, of, of suffering. This is what suffering is. And it is. It certainly can be. There's another aspect of suffering that <coughs> becomes, begins to become more apparent as our practice uh, takes a deeper root. We begin to notice things more deeply. Uh, the incessant changing likes and dislikes, the incessant changing wants, rejections. In this we begin, when we begin to see this, and we have a wonderful opportunity when we're sitting still and just watching our mind, when we begin to see this changing likes and dislikes moment to moment, our wants and our rejections changing moment to moment. This is the beginning of seeing the suffering of delusion. This underlying hope that, for instance, having certain things, certain people, particular experiences, that all these things will give us some kind of unchanging, permanent, pleasurable state. And then it all changes. This, this particular aspect of suffering, the suffering of delusion, um, isn't always so apparent in our daily life as we kind of blithely go around in our life accumulating things, experiences, people. until we sit down and really take a look. The truth of things are, as we talked a little bit about last night, the truth of all existence is that it's transitory. It's very transitory. So when we take the time to look deeply, we begin to notice that there's a suffering in trying to fix things hold things. This underlying hope, this constant dissatisfaction, and we keep trying to get, hold, have, hoping that some one of these things will do it for us. It's a kind of tension, a constant tension, dissatisfaction within ourselves that we begin to notice as we pay attention. And we don't notice it when we ignore this, or avoid or ignore this inherent, transitory, uncertain, impermanent nature of life that's within us and all around us, always. So that's the second um, aspect of suffering, the suffering of delusion. The third aspect of suffering, 
which is really the most subtle and I think in a certain way the most deeply pervasive. This is the suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is contingent, totally. Everything is relative, everything is related. That's what that word relative means, actually. (laughs) Everything is related. Everything is in relationship. Everything is contingent. The suffering is, when we ignore this, we often take the opposite of this truth as the reality of things. We take our experiences, we take things to be very, very solidly in place, permanent, and take our experiences and things to be a separate, solid something, a separate, solid happening, or a separate, solid something. We take forms as though they exist in and of themselves. And then we hold on very tightly. We hold on to the past that way. We project into the future that way. And we solidify both of these. And yet life just keeps rolling on, totally interdependent, totally contingent, totally relative. As we hold on that way, it always will eventually create suffering for us or suffering for others because of the nature of life. But the good news is (laughs) that fortunately suffering itself is a conditional aspect of life. It's not an absolute, it's a conditional aspect of life. (coughs) Last spring um, I was at a conference Buddhist teachers conference and there were teachers present uh, from all three of the Buddhist traditions, the Theravada tradition, the uh, Zen tradition, and the Tibetan tradition. These were uh, basically teachers who uh, taught Western students. There were some Asian teachers there but particularly Asian teachers who work with Western students as well as Asian students, and lots of Western teachers from all three traditions. And the Dalai Lama was one of us. He was, he's a Buddhist teacher and worked with lots of Westerners. He was also our guest of honor. And, um, but he engaged in, we had lots of dialogue and discussion and exploration. It was really a wonderful, wonderful meeting. And um, uh, at one point he was speaking and um, he said he gets asked this question a lot. We talked about, as teachers, what, what's our experience? And he said one of the things he gets asked a lot is, what is Buddhism? And um, 
So we said, okay, well, what is it? <laughs> you know, tell us what, from your perspective, what is it? And uh, he said, Buddhism is a certain kind of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of negative and afflictive emotions. He said it's certain kind of mental training, kinds of mental training, to completely purify afflictive emotions. He said this is what realization is. The end, completely the end of all afflictive emotion. That's a, quite a profound possibility. <laughs> he said that um, it's not just about happiness, the temporal happiness in this life, the fleeting happiness in this life, living a happier life. That's not really the basic aim. It's much, much deeper than that. The cessation of all afflictive emotion. That's a liberated being. We had, a, we had these small groups that met uh, daily. We called them the home group, our home group. And we met with the same people every day at one point to just discuss all the different aspects of what was going on at the meeting with the same people. And uh, one, uh, one man in our group, uh, he was a Zen, he's a Zen teacher. And after we met, not too long after the Dalai Lama said this that same day, and he said, did you ever meet anybody like that? <laughs> Completely, totally free of all afflictive emotion? He was doubting at that moment. <laughs> well, maybe we haven't met anybody like that, but... Uh, just uh, for instance, uh, the Dalai Lama, I don't remember if it was in exactly the same conversation, but he said that he still feels anger sometimes. He's not finished yet. Um, but he said it doesn't last very long. It's very brief. It doesn't stick. It just comes and it goes. He recognizes it, but it doesn't stick around. <coughs> So it's um, some of our afflictive emotions are obvious, and some of them aren't. We like to ignore and uh, pretend, and it's not easy to to touch and to see. It's kind of as though um, all of us have some skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha actually wasn't um, excluded from this either. Mara dragged them all out and tried to tempt him to get stuck. Those were all the poison arrows. These kind of skeletons in the closet, old ones and sometimes seemingly new ones, Angers, fears, judgments, sadness, strong desires, various confusions, pains. From our 
present life's experience and carried on for many, many, many lifetimes experience. And some of these we've looked at, certainly we've looked at, and, and some of them we've hidden away. In our practice, in meditation, we, the instruction is to open to whatever's present, whatever's arising, including things that may have been tucked away, these skeletons in the closet, whenever they might appear. There are some people who seem to be able to find a a deep and true contentment without ever letting out the skeletons. Uh, And that's just fine for them. I might say what the fellow in the group said, have you ever met anyone like that? (laughs) I actually haven't. But I hear that that's possible. (laughs) I think, though, that most of us really need to discover these these skeletons in order to find a a true depth of happiness, in order to find a a real ease of well-being in our life. Or we continue to delude ourselves, deluding ourselves into thinking we're happy, but never really quite being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or that we've hidden from or that we've judged as unacceptable and buried away. Practice gives us a very powerful tool of open-hearted, non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, receptive presence to be able to see clearly. With our practice, we learn to open to our experience from the heart of kindness. It's essential that we open from the heart of kindness, from the heart of compassion for ourselves. We open to our experience from the deepest spaciousness, from the very deepest center of our being, and learn to see the immediacy of experience with no extra baggage attached. Just what's right here, right now. And realize that it doesn't have to control us. As our practice goes on, We begin to learn to offer what we could call a choiceless awareness, which means being present with all of the arisings of mind and body, without getting caught or lost in the content. We practice and we learn a moment-to-moment investigation, this investigation of mind, of heart, of body, through cultivating a calm, focused awareness, which allows us to experience sensations, emotions, thoughts, and consciousness itself with a greater balance and clarity.
with this compassionate, non-judgmental, spacious presence, we can actually begin to realize that anger, fear, sadness, strong desire, confusion, judgment, really have no more control over us. We no longer need to analyze any of it. Things are as they are. We don't need to fix it. We leave everything as it is. In a sense, our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. We can be present in any moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 10 minutes ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, without giving the past continued power over us. It's finished. It's gone. This is really our possibility in practice. There's a, a Buddhist saying, says, rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be soddened by the rain. So we sit quietly and we watch ourselves. And all kinds of things come to the surface. This mind, we could say, is, is a set of conditioned habits, mental conditioning, ways of thinking, ways of feeling. And they come to the surface to be looked at, to be examined, we could say, investigated. And it takes time, it takes a lot of patience, a lot of perseverance, and we just have to pay attention, that's it. And the rest will take care of itself. It's not a linear process. As we continue to see more and more clearly, we also continue cultivating the heart of kindness and compassion, as we're touching into a little bit in this retreat each day with metta practice. And it naturally also arises and develops in the vipassana practice. It's really the whole, the whole seamless circle of heartful spaciousness, heartful spacious mindfulness that allows the clearest depth of this of all the truths to be seen. And sometimes there's fear, there's resistance to opening. Anxiety, tension, worry is created by and manifests to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. So the degree of our fear creates tension, worry, anxiety, all based in fear. 
And it can be kind of a vicious circle, feeding itself, we could say. And so we work, we practice with great gentleness, kindness, patience for ourselves as we go through this process of opening, opening and letting go, relinquishing, letting go meaning relinquishing our old habits of confusion, of anguish, relinquishing our habitual places of suffering. This is from Nisargadatta Maharaj. Don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be sub- by submer- don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. So this contingency, this multitude of conditions, everything being dependent on everything else, nothing arising or originating totally separately from anything else, including our emotional states of mind. Because of this, that. Because of that, this. Everything related, everything relative. An infinitude of relationships, including the arising of anger, fear, strong desires, judgments, sadnesses. So instead of taking these experiences, these strong energies, to be solidly in place, a permanent, it's me, that's who I am, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm sad. We feel sadness, we feel anger, we feel fear, we feel everything. But it's totally contingent. It comes and goes. So letting go of our habits of holding on and identification. Those of you that live here in uh, the Taos area know this. And those of you that don't, haven't had the opportunity to view this yet, don't know if you will or not, but um, when it rains a lot here, we have a rainy season, we call a monsoon season, which is um, uh, not now, it's later in August, September. But it rains a lot, and um, often we have a lot of rainbows because it's also sunny a lot, sometimes in the middle of the rain. So there are a lot of rainbows. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. There's just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, and the angle of the sunlight is just right. 
And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. (laughs) And there's a rainbow. And then it changes really fast, very quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, all of our experiences of body, of mind, are like a rainbow. Merely a changing set of conditions that are totally interrelated, totally contingent, and empty in and of themselves. And it's very obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing uh, appearing phenomena, both mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, we could say. The suffering of grasping on, of holding tight, of trying to cling on to some appearing thing or experience or state of mind, any phenomena, and then solidifying it and identifying it as me, as mine, as who I think I am. Thinking of things, thinking of experiences, phenomena, as alone, all by itself, real, unchanging entity, be it material objects or an idea, an opinion, a belief, an emotional state, a bodily experience, thinking of any of these as permanent, as unchanging, and identifying any of these as me, as mine, as I, in this process of our life's experience, it'll inevitably bring suffering. It'll inevitably bring anguish we will inevitably be confused, even if we don't know we're confused. (laughs) The way of things, the nature of life, the natural laws, the simple unfolding of life will inevitably get in the way and frustrate our efforts to cling on, to solidify this and that. Liberation, freedom from suffering, it isn't based on anything imaginary or pretended or hoped for or wished for or philosophized for or avoided or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. Practice gives us this incredibly powerful tool of open, open-hearted, non-judgmental presence to simply see clearly, to open the closet, look at the boxes, to uncover what may have been hidden or that we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around mostly unconsciously, unwittingly, probably for a long time. This is a, a sort of a poem uh, by a man named, I have to put my glasses on for this one, Fred Morimarco. <clears throat> I just read it the other day. 
called Recipe for Unhappiness. One cup, what is. One cup, inability to accept what is. <laughs> Three tablespoons, complaints. One teaspoon, light whining. <laughs> One quarter pound, alternate scenario, preferably unattainable. <laughs> One bunch, actual reality. One pint, idealized worldview. Two teaspoons, perfection. Four sprigs, envy minced for garnish. And this is what you do with all this. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. <laughs> Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends. But be careful, but be careful not to overseason or they won't hang around. <laughs> in a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern <laughs> that existed before separation. <coughs> Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, ask what, add what is an inability to accept what is blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form garnished with minced envy, and serve immediately. <laughs> the recipe for unhappiness. <laughs> is it familiar? <laughs> and this is from um, a Chinese sage, Nanshin. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. Another way of saying the same thing. <laughs> so we can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. In the clarity, amazing clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance isn't bliss. A great American saying, ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance is ignorance, and bliss is bliss. With ignorance, or ignoring, <laughs> providing the fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. But, Fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only impermanent, conditioned, contingent states of suffering. It's not our true nature. They're just two hues of the many-hued rainbow. This is a, a piece, uh, again by Stephen Mitchell, his version of the myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus, Sisyphus, Sisyphus <laughs> as a tragic hero. 
condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside and let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. So in the spirit of stepping aside uh, and going home, grounded in wisdom and compassion, I'd like to explore some specific emotional states of mind uh, with you this evening. The, some states based in strong desire, strong aversion, that are sometimes spoken of as hope and fear. The strong energies of mind, of body, that can sometimes be quite difficult for us. And we'll begin, uh, begin with uh, where Siddhartha Gautama left off, this doubt, self-doubt. The root, the, the root of the contraction of doubt is often engendered by fear. We could say fear in the guise of, of doubt, fear in the guise of confusion. And often our experiences that <clears throat> we won't attend to, we, we won't open, we don't want to, or we feel that we can't, we can't be with this experience, whatever it is, or this process, or this moment. In the anguished confusion of doubt, we might feel kind of frozen. The sensations of our heart, our body, our mind are that of contraction. We feel, might feel lost, feel confused, feel caught. This sense of not being able to take the next step. This rock that we're carrying is uh, too heavy. It's weighing us down. And so at this point we may indulge in doubting. It feels like maybe an easy way out of this difficulty. Doubting. Doubting the situation. Doubting another person. Which often manifests in blaming. Or judging. Or turning it around and doubting us. Self-judgment. Often taken, taken further, a feeling of unworthiness. All of this based in fear. 
not being good enough, not being perfect. I'd like to uh, offer you a definition of perfection that um, is not uh, our usual conditioning or way of thinking about it. This is a definition of perfection from Chang Tzu. The mind of a perfect woman or man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or the perfect man can act without effort. A very different way of thinking about perfection, not about becoming something. The distraction of doubting, we get caught in believing that, and this continues to be our state of mind for any period of time, we're caught in fear, actually, living in and out of fear. And it's hard to look at fear. It's hard to open to it, to see it clearly, especially if we've taken a little bit of a peek and... uh, (laughs) we really maybe in the past haven't had a real clear avenue of reflection haven't really known how to or had the right support and the skills on how to look how to see this practice vipassana practice with its avenue of mindful awareness it's very it's a very amazing tool for clear seeing and the inevitable intuitive understanding that very naturally arises. And so essentially we have to do it ourselves. Nobody can do it for us. It's also quite important to have support along the way. Coming to a retreat like this have some strong, clear guidance along the way, a spiritual friend, a teacher, who can help with reflection and guidance, support of friends, sangha. As we get stronger and stronger through seeing more clearly with this very patient, loving, compassionate, mindfulness, we find that we can actually begin to open to fear, to come close to it, to not be shut off to the unknown, shut off to the vastness of possibility. As we get stronger through seeing more clearly, we can begin to actually acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, And know that it doesn't have to run us. It doesn't have to run our life. And know that it's not who we are. It's not me. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. 
totally contingent something, totally dependent on an infinite finitude of conditions. So from this perspective, if we really begin to see this, it's very clear that it's not me. It it's, uh, quite uh, cuts the identity. It doesn't mean that we don't experience fear. But like the Dalai Lama said with anger, it doesn't stick. There's no sticky. The sticky is me. <laughs> the I is the sticky. So we begin to have a different relationship to things than we've been trained, than we've been conditioned to. Fear appears as one of the hues of the rainbow, we could say. And we begin to lose the fear of fear itself. And we begin to look it in the eye. Fear and anger can color our entire experience, as I'm sure you're aware of. When we're caught in these energies, it seems that nothing and nobody is right, including ourselves. When we're swept away in these states of mind, we often feel quite restless in our body, quite restless in our mind. And it might be very difficult or maybe even seemingly impossible to become concentrated or mindfully explore these experiences in this moment. To practice, to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our experience with this spirit of exploration, spirit of investigation, without pushing it away, or without pulling away from it, or without desiring it to be different. So it's really important to learn to work with these states of mind, these states of body, when they're present in our field of experience. Look look at anger a little bit here. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling hot spring. When we're angry, we, we can't see very far or see clearly. And of course, judging or suppressing or repressing difficult emotional energies doesn't work. It it actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities and our awareness. And it keeps the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And if we act out uh, of our difficult emotions, act out on our difficult emotions, we actually strengthen, we reinforce the habit of them. We strengthen the particular patterns around them. We water, we fertilize the seeds of our old habit patterns. And of course we can also get into a great deal of trouble and create a lot of suffering for ourselves. And for others, when we act out of great fear, great anger. Within this amazing tool of practice, the most direct way to work with these sometimes very difficult and very strong states 
these very strong energies of mind, is to, of course, be mindful of them. To at times make them the object of our attention when they arise. It's not about looking for them, but if they arise, to make them the object of our attention. These powerful energies can become another aspect of our growing and deepening mindfulness. Working with these forces can actually become the source of energy and insight. We can learn to directly observe anger, fear, sadness, desire, jealousy, and begin to understand through our own direct experience with them how they operate in the mind, how they operate in the body. Emotional states are, strong emotional states are very clearly reflected in the body as sensation. We can also note them. If they're clearly known, if it's known anger, we can note anger. And sometimes that alone makes it clear there's an acceptance and there's a depersonalization in the relationship to it. And, an, and there is an understanding that intuitively happens. But if they stick around, making them the object of our mindful attention. With this intimacy of mindful awareness, we can know the particular textures, the particular flavors, say, of anger itself, or fear itself. And we can directly then experience also the changing, ephemeral, contingent, and selfless nature of these strong emotional states. We can actually learn to experience the extremes of these energies without being caught up or being swept away, without being overcome by them. It's really possible. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. We're often very identified with strong emotional states, and it prevents us from seeing them clearly. There was a woman at the meditation center uh, where I lived, and she um, experienced a lot of anger. It was uh, a lot of her, she was energetic in a certain way, but a lot of her energy was fueled by anger. And she was very attached and very identified with her anger. And in fact, she spoke about really liking her anger. She felt very strong. Anger is a very powerful energy. She felt very strong and very powerful in this energy of anger. But unfortunately, she wasn't a very happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. Because people would begin to get close to her and then feel the sharp, very sharp burn of her anger, and then they would move away. So she was very lonely didn't have very many friends. And she was so identified with her anger that she was afraid that if, if she was no longer angry, that she would lose herself, 
as she put it. She would lose her energy. She would lose her power, lose the fuel for her life, she felt, if she let go of her anger. So she wasn't willing to look at it. And she remained in a lot of suffering, as long as I knew her. I have no idea now, but it was some a, a sad situation. This is another quote from Nisargadatta. His uh, teachings are all in dialogue form, question from a student and an answer. The student asks him, what is the real cause of suffering? And Nisargadatta answers, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind, bewildered, bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The degree to which we hold on or try to cling on to our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. The truth of the matter is that the strong energy that's present in strong emotional states, the energy doesn't disappear. We don't lose it as this woman uh, that I've told the story about was afraid of. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our very own personal advantages, such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition, with a clear, non-self-absorbed, and yet very interested, mindful attention, even for just a moment. Therein lies the possibility of the transformation of the strong energies of fear, clinging, desire, anger, sadness. I'd like to spend a few moments now looking at strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. It's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) These states of mind, clinging, attachment, strong desire, that very often define what we think we need in order to be contented, to be happy. What we think we need in order to be at ease. As I've already said, in different ways, we often live our life projecting our hopes, our dreams of fulfillment onto some object or some kind of future or what we want to become or how we want to be related to or not related to or how we want to be seen or not seen. I'd like to read you a prayer uh, from Mother Teresa. As I understand it, 
<coughs> this was um, one of her practices, her personal practices. And uh, <coughs> I, I don't know if she actually was made a saint, but I know there was a lot of talk about making her a saint. And many people feel she was. So this is, this is the practice of a saint. And I'm going to read it just the way it was given to me. <coughs> Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being calumniated, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. I read this to somebody and he said, oh, do I ever have a lot of work to do? (laughs) And and we do. And she felt like she did too. Uh, but it's, it's inspiring, or I found it quite inspiring and quite um, instructive, quite helpful. Strong desire in the mind in the classical teachings is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We can no longer see the bottom. Our, our vision's obscured. The mind and the heart are clouded when we're caught in the energies of clinging, when we're caught in the energies of attachment. We become quite dependent at times on having certain objects of our desire and having them stay the same or just having them. And in this dependency, or at least in part, we live in hope, constant hope which is attention, for them to remain or remain the same. We spend a lot of our time pursuing or trying to recreate the changing objects. It's a lot of stress, a lot of tension. We often think that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it can't. So I think a good question to ask yourself every now and then is, how driven am I by my desires? It's not that we don't have them, but how driven am I by my desires? I'd like to share a brief experience uh, of mine uh, at a retreat center here in New Mexico. where they have uh, some of the most beautiful flower gardens that I know of. And I was uh, teaching there a number of years ago, walking by uh, one particular section of the flower garden, and a strong smell of a flower came to my nose. And I followed my nose to the flower and uh, leaned over and smelled. Very pleasurable experience. And... uh, I didn't have much time. I had some responsibilities, so I was a quick smell. <laughs> and I had to leave. 
But I found uh, mindfulness was quite strong, and I found that I, I had to go, but I didn't want to go. And so I got up to go, but I was, there was this tension, this pull to go back. And I kept thinking about the smell of the flower and wanting to go back there and thinking, well, when can I go back and get another one? And uh, Oh, that was so wonderful. And then I realized in a moment or two that it was no longer pleasurable. That what had been a moment of really sweet pleasure was suffering. I was holding on, yearning, thinking, wanting, tense, uncomfortable, not wanting to go, wanting this. It was no fun anymore, you know. I was suffering. And it's subtle, but we do that all the time. And interestingly enough, until we really begin to pay attention and see clearly what is actually taking place, we mistakenly, we're deluded in thinking that that yearning is pleasurable. And that's, that's something really important. That that yearning, that desire, that intense wanting is pleasurable. Until we really look at it and see what's going on inside. It was really instructive for me that day. Uh, very helpful. In an early sutta of the Buddhas, he talked about everything burning. And I'll just quote a little bit. He said, the eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. What is heard is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And he went on through all the six sense doors. Burning. Everything's burning. And then he said, burning of what? Burning of desire. Burning of hatred. Burning of jealousy, burning of fear, burning with the fire of confusion. And it's interesting, when I read this, I realized in English we have certain expressions, burning anger, burning with desire. But we don't think of it as suffering, do we? Until we look directly at our own experience. Mindfulness offers us the possibility of the transformation from the burning of afflictive emotions into the energies of Buddha wisdom. And this is a this is a perspective from Tibetan Buddhism which I really like. In Tibetan Buddhism, they talk about emotions as the nourishing mud in which the lotuses, this is from a particular sutra, in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. From the Vimalakirtri Sutra, which is a sutra of, uh, about a layman, a layperson who became enlightened. And this is Vimalakirtri speaking. Flowers like the blue lotuses, the red lotuses, the white lotuses do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, 
but do grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. It's really a different way to think about it. (laughs) The poisons, as they're sometimes called in Buddhism, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, they use that expression. The poisons, the anguish, the confusion of self-centered existence, the are transformed into nectar or Buddha wisdoms. When this thread of self is pulled out, strong emotions, we could say, are digested into wisdom when they're seen clearly. Without self-grasping, without self, pulling out the thread of self, the strong energies of strong emotions transform. They're digested into wisdom energy. For instance, anger without self, without, with no self-grasping, transformed into a mirror-like wisdom. And from that, appropriate action springs. Strong desire, wanting, grasping, without self, with no self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of clear discrimination, clear discriminating awareness. Arrogance, self-recrimination, in the Buddhist teaching, both are called conceit. Arrogance and self-recrimination. The conceit of self, self self-centeredness. Both of these energies are based in fear. And they keep us bound, they keep us caught. Without self, with no self-grasping, they transform into the wisdom of equality. Jealousy without the contraction of self-centeredness, digests into all-accomplishing wisdom, meaning just simply doing what needs to be done now. Sadness, without self, with no self-grasping, digests into the, transform, is digested and transforms into the wisdom of compassion. We could go on, but that's enough. The Buddha's uh, teachings and practices are about finding the place of coolness. The coolness based in deep understanding. This coolness in our life, the place of freedom from burning, the end of the restless movement of constant wanting, craving, or constant not wanting, resistance. It's about finding the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just seen. What is heard is just heard. What is felt is just felt. What is smelled is just smelled. Mm As we see clearly, being so present in the moment without grasping onto experience, 
It's really about letting the great undoing begin, the undoing of our karmic predicaments, the contingent conditioned filters through which we suffer. It's about resting in a deep silence, resting in the boundless, deep spaciousness, and paying attention, an extraordinary kind of attention in the midst of letting life live through us. The times in practice when we experience a stillness, a peacefulness, they're really wonderful gifts that inspire us, and they help us to keep going along the path. Sometimes we sit so still in a very deep, peaceful place, even if just for a moment. What we call and experience difficult sittings, these can often be places of a very deep learning. And it's important to be here for both both of these. This practice, Vipassana practice, is balanced in the midst of all that we experience with a growing deep awareness of the truth of who we are, of the truth of our nature, our true nature, which isn't something that we have to strive for to try to manifest but something, or we could say nothing, (laughs) that just is, that's always present, right now, right here. I'd like to close the talk with this poem. It's called Hokusai Says. Hokusai was uh, the Japanese painter who painted the big wave, quite a famous painting. Some of you may know it. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more of who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself, as long as it's interesting. (laughs) He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He said, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. 
Joy is life living through you. (coughs) Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. Let's sit for just a moment. 